this summer. We're kind of breaking away from our normal pattern of doing discussion groups and some of our older kids who are normally doing uh, Sunday school are going to be in here with us. Uh, but we're going to be looking at church history all summer in the 930 hour. Uh, this morning we're talking about the early church. So we would, we're covering the period from about A.D. 49 to A.D. 312. Uh, there are going to be some handouts that are on their way. They're not quite here yet, but when they get here, uh, we'll get them passed out and you can kind of follow along. There's, there's an outline that we can follow along. So really, we're kind of starting in the book of Acts. So if you remember where, where the book of Acts begins, uh, Christ has come into the world. Uh, he's gathered together this group of believers, this group of followers. Uh, they've spent several years with him. Uh, he's been uh, teaching them, training them up, discipling them, and then he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross ultimately to die for our sins. Uh, and we see that through the resurrection that he is who he said he was. He came to earth saying that he came with all authority and power and, and that he was God. And so through the resurrection, we see that that's true and that, that everything he said was true and everything he said had complete authority. And so that's where the book of Acts begins. Christ has resurrected. He's appeared before hundreds of people. And in the very first uh, chapter there of the book of Acts, we see that he ascends into heaven. Before he does that, he gives the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come and descend upon his followers, uh, that, that the Holy Spirit will give them power, and he calls them to go out into the world. He tells them to go from Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth, and that's exactly what they begin to do. And this is kind of the beginning of the early church. This is where we're, we're starting off this morning. Any honest history scholar, believer or non-believer, atheist, agnostic, if they're honest, they would say that something radical happened in our culture when Christ came into the world. They might not say that he's God, they might just say that he was a good teacher or a philosopher, but they would say that something radical happened. Culture changed very quickly. Uh, with Christians coming onto the scene. Um, in Acts 17, we have this scene of Paul. Paul comes into Thessalonica, and he's uh, preaching the word. He visits the synagogue, and he was reasoning with them from scriptures, really presenting <coughs> the gospel. And there was this guy, Jason, who had brought, brought them in. And uh, some of the people, some of the folks in Thessalonica were upset about this. So they kind of dragged Jason before these authorities. And they're talking about Paul and they say, why would you bring these men who have turned the world upside down? And that's exactly what we see Christians doing. They come in and they, they're kind of turning the current world upside down. And some of us would say they weren't really turning it upside down. They were turning it right side up. So why was this like so radical? Uh, why was this claim that Christ was a Messiah, uh, this, this you know, kind of small religious sect uh, in the Middle East, this, this Jewish sect, which really, when we're looking at the whole world population, was very, very tiny. Why was this such a radical thing? Um, first of all, it was a, the, the, the fact that people were claiming that Jesus Christ 
was this fulfillment of this prophecy and that he was God who had come to earth and that he was the ultimate true king, this was a claim to a particular historical event. So it couldn't be mythologized. There were thousands or, or really hundreds, maybe thousands of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And there were certainly tens of thousands of witnesses to the miracles that Christ had done here on earth. So it couldn't be mythologized. There were eyewitnesses that were still alive and present. Secondly, unlike Roman pagan religion, it was an exclusive claim. So it was a claim that, that Jesus was the only way to be reconciled to God, whereas the Roman culture of, of this time, kind of their religion was really loose, and, and there were lots and lots and lots of gods, and they were very inclusive of all those gods. The third thing is it was, a, it was an all-encompassing claim. So following Jesus demanded your full allegiance, and that might displace duties to the empire, right? And so th this was seen as something that was destabilizing to society. So let's kind of talk about the context that this early church was really born into in, in the Roman Empire here. So we know that Christianity emerged from Judaism uh, in the first century, and, and there were encounters first with the Jews, right? Christianity first encountered the Jews, and then the Gentiles, and then it really went out to the broader Roman world. So let's first talk about the first encounter with the Jews. So we see Jesus himself initially confronting the Jewish religious leaders. You know, he's always calling out their religious hypocrisy. He's kind of upending their way of thinking. Um, and then we see in Acts 15, uh, in the very earliest phases of the church, we see where the apostles and the church at Jerusalem affirm that these Gentile believers, these non-Jews who were coming in, did not have to become Jews. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow the Mosaic laws in order to follow Christ. And so that was a very radical idea uh, amongst the Jews. And so there was a confrontation there. Uh, we see that uh, Christianity then kind of collides with Roman culture. So to the Romans, to those who were outside of Judaism or Christianity, really they saw the Christians almost as a sect of Judaism because they kind of followed a lot of the same moral laws, right? Like they, they saw marriage, uh, they, they kind of held to the sanctity of marriage, they held to the sanctity of life uh, like Jews did. But there was also a big difference, and this is where, where uh, Christians begin to collide with the Roman Empire. Christians weren't simply content just to exist. And, and this wasn't an ethnic thing like it was with the Jews. They wanted to expand. They wanted to win converts. They were evangelical, and, and this created a lot of tension with the Romans, and they saw this as destabilizing. So let's talk a little bit about Roman society and their religion at this time. So... The Romans, really, in the early first century and second century here, they, the, 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 there was no central religion. And so they saw themselves as very diverse and inclusive. They prided themselves on their inclusivity. 
So bringing in all kinds of religions, all kinds of ways of thought. So it's really similar to our current world that we're living in right now. People pride themselves on inclusivity. And so uh, one historian, uh, Henry Chadwick, and I'm going to quote quite a bit from him today. Uh, he wrote a lot about this, these first few centuries of the church. He says this about the Roman uh, religious culture. He says, by supporting the various deities, by supposing that the various deities were either the same God under different names or local administrators for a supreme deity, it was possible to give all cults a loose unity. The Roman government was in practice tolerant of any cult provided that it did not encourage sedition or weaken morality. Indeed, one reason, the Roman mil one, one reason for Roman military success was, to believe, was believed to be the fact that while other peoples worshipped only their own local deities, the Romans worshipped all deities without exclusiveness and therefore had been rewarded for their piety. So Rome considered themselves inclusive and tolerant, but really there was an exclusivity and intolerance to their system. It worked only as long as every group accepted the status quo. Uh, this is another quote from Chadwick. He said, to refuse to participate in the pagan emperor cult was a political as well as religious act and could easily be construed as dangerous disaffection. So in other words, if you didn't participate in kind of their pagan rituals, if you didn't participate in the kind of public sacrifices that they had, eat uh, sacrificial foods and all those types of things, you were considered a traitor to the Roman Empire. And so you can see that this would be where Christians would run into trouble. So in AD 64, we have this big fire that breaks out in Rome. I'm sure all of you have uh, read about this or were taught this in, in history at some point, but there's this big fire that breaks out and it raged for nine days. And, and by the time it was finally under control, two thirds of Rome had been destroyed. So Nero's the emperor at this time, and, and there all these rumors begin to circulate that Nero himself started the fire because he wanted to kind of burn Rome down and start over and build a new city. Uh, so Nero's feeling the heat, if you will, and uh, he needs a scapegoat. So the scapegoat was this unpopular group of people, these Christians. Uh, and so the Roman historian Tactus uh, writes about this, this is about 50 years after the fire, so really within a generation. It says, to kill the rumors, Nero ch charged and tortured some people hated for their evil practices, the group popularly called Christians. The founder of this sect, Christus, had been put to death by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, when Tiberius was emperor. Tactus continues to write here, uh, first those who confessed to being Christians were arrested. And on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred of humankind. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate it. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. So we can see that Things were, were difficult for Christians in Rome. This is A.D. 64, uh, very early, early on in the church, the first, you know, 20 or so years. 
So why were Christians hated? You know, why were they hated? They were people known for their charity and love. And there was a lot of misunderstanding about who they were and what they believed. They were really small. And so they weren't, Christianity at this time was not widespread. And so Christians spoke in a way that was foreign to Roman culture at the time. And so when they talked about the Lord's Supper, they, they referred to it as a love feast. And so the Romans kind of thought that they were cannibals. And they also thought they were incestuous because even husbands and wives referred to one another as brother and sister. And so there was a lot of misunderstanding and really a lot of hatred uh, towards Christians at this time. And so they were a popular scapegoat for Nero. Kind of the, ne- the next glimpse in history that we get of how early Christians were viewed was from a series of letters between uh, the Roman emperor at the time and a Roman governor from around 112 AD. So in 112 AD, there's this Roman governor of an area that's kind of modern-day Turkey. His name's Pliny the Younger, and he was writing to Emperor Trajan, and he was asking for advice on how to deal with Christians. So we have these writings And so we can see what was said and what the the mindset was at this time. So Pliny writes this. He says, For the moment, this is the line I have taken with all persons brought before me on the charge of being Christians. I have asked them in person if they are Christians. And if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and third time with the warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission... I am convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable uh, obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. There have been others similarly fanatical who are Roman citizens. I have entered them on the list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. So we see that, again, life's not too good for Christians early on uh, in the Roman Empire. Um, And this was largely dependent on the area that you lived in. There were some areas in the Roman Empire that were kind of, you know, live and let live. So Christians weren't uh, persecuted as much. But then there were other areas where they were heavily persecuted uh, at times. And so a lot of it depended on the ruler. You also see through that letter that there's a different treatment for Roman citizens. We know this was the truth for Paul, right, because he was a Roman citizen. And so you see there was different treatment for those who were Roman citizens and those who were just kind of conquered peoples. So this letter kind of highlights all this, but we also see that um, the difference between the way Judaism was treated and the way Christianity was treated. So Judaism at the time was regarded by Rome as religio lictica, So that meant that it was a legitimate, protected religion. So there was protection under the Roman Empire. But Christianity kind of was regarded as superstitio, which was kind of this uh, Roman category for mystery religions. And they they didn't like these religions. And so they weren't granted legal protection because they felt that they were destabilizing for the empire. So... Christians were oftentimes, ironically, actually accused of being atheist. That was one of the main accusations against them because they refused to participate in, this, in the public sacrifices and the public worshiping of Roman gods. And so oftentimes the accusation 
was atheism uh, from the culture, which is, which is interesting. Um, so why were they considered to be haters of mankind? And, and the reason is, at the time, that the Roman uh, culture believed that they were protected from their enemies. They believed that they were protected by natural disasters because they were so inclusive of worshiping all these gods. So they figured if everyone in the empire was worshiping all these different gods, well, they were covered, right? Because, you know, maybe I'm not worshiping this god and he's mad, but this other guy over here is worshiping this god and he's placating him. And we don't have floods and, and, our, and our army is successful and no one has conquered us. Uh, one Christ, early Christian pastor who's well-known, uh, Tertullian, commented this. He says, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the cry is Christians to the lion. So when there would be natural disasters, uh, if there was a conflict that was not going well for the Romans uh, at that time, kind of the instinct was to punish the Christians, oftentimes uh, through death and execution. So a very difficult time for Christians this first two centuries. But again, like I said, we don't need to think about this as being in all places in the Roman Empire. There were certain pockets of persecution, and there were places where Christians were largely allowed to live freely. Uh, and the Roman government really didn't take Christianity too seriously until about the third century because it was so small. And that, that really allowed the Christians breathing room to deal with internal critical problems and to grow as a church and to kind of organize uh, as a church. But the biggest internal threat, it was Gnosticism. And so we're going to shift our focus here to talking about Gnosticism. So we see the external threat from Rome, from persecution, but maybe the bigger threat to the early Christian church was false teaching. We see this in the, in the epistles. Uh, oftentimes, letters were written to refute this false teaching in Scripture. We, we see that over and over again. Kind of the biggest threat was Gnosticism. Does anybody want to give us a, a definition of Gnosticism? I don't have a great one. But it, it was kind of like this generic term uh, used to refer to these adaptations to Christianity that were propagated by, there were probably a dozen or more different sects, and they really began to break from the church around AD 80 to, to AD 150. And so uh, Gnosticism is kind of this loose term that's used to describe this belief that there's this big bifurcation between the spirit and matter. And, and there's a, it's like a dualism between the body and spirit. It's a lot like a lot of New Age religions we have now, to be honest with you. We think about New Age religions as being new, but they've been around for at least 2,000 years. Um, so it was really kind of a belief that all physical matter was inherently evil and beyond redemption, but that salvation came from within, from basically from knowledge, from gnosis. And that's why we get the term Gnosticism. And so they believe that there is a divine spark within everyone born and that just knowledge almost like activated that in a way. So this dualism could lead to either radical um, kind of harsh discipline 
because because they wanted to tame the evil body and so it would be like denying anything that brings pleasure in this world it's almost like and we have this kind of thinking today in, in certain sects of like eastern religion it's it's just a denial of any type of of pleasure it's like self-denial at all cost or it was kind of the opposite it, it brought radical uh, licentiousness so like doing whatever feels good whenever I feel like doing it without any moral compass at all it's like do you know whatever makes you happy right now and so we see a lot of that type of thinking in our current culture today as well so all these things that we feel like oh man the world is so different it, it nothing's new sin is sin it's been here it's been with us since the fall So, in the epistles, you know, like I said, we see a lot of evidence of the influence of Gnosticism. Uh, we see this in the Corinthian church in the letters to the Corinthians. And so, within the church, we had these uh, kind of two different ways of thinking from these Gnostic presuppositions about that. And they were both based in, on the Gnostic belief that the body or matter was insignificant. So, on one side, some are arguing that physical acts were a matter of indifference. And so they could give themselves over to whatever they wanted. And so we had a lot of sexual immorality within the church at this time. And then there was the other side within the Corinthian church who kind of took this extreme disciplined approach. And so they were discouraging any pleasure. And so they were discouraging God-given things like, like uh, uh, sexual intimacy within marriage. They were discouraging that. And they were downplaying the importance of the resurrected body in the coming age. So it's important for us to see this today, right? We live in an age with there's, there's a lot of confusion about gender, sex, about the body. Um, we need to see that both the radical rejection of the goodness of the body and the idolatrous obsession with the body are both rooted in the same unbiblical errors of Gnosticism. And so it's something that we uh, see today quite a bit. So why would Christians be attracted to this type of thinking? First of all, we think that Gnosticism was around before Christianity. And so this was kind of a, a belief within the culture. And then as the Christian church began to form, as, as people began to become converted, that this began to creep into the church. These false teachers, these wolves... Uh, that were spoken about were coming into the church and, and writing all these made-up letters that they claimed to be apostolic. Uh, some of the letters we have today that people write books about, you know, writing all these letters that were really forgeries. And so they were wolves, and they were coming in to destroy the sheep. And um, Gnosticism, kind of maybe the main attraction that some people have said, uh, would be the explanation of the origins of evil. It, you know, Gnosticism kind of mythologized the creation account in Genesis, and it claimed that the material world was an inherently and irretrievably evil. It taught that the soul was imprisoned in the body, and it denied the resurrection of the body in the coming age. It mainly consisted of the memorization of secret passwords in collecting amulets that would supposedly help the soul navigate the cosmic journey to God after death. 
it's basically kind of a new age cult, you know, going on in the first and second century. So a lot of this seems ridiculous to us today, but Gnosticism posed a great temptation to Christians who may have wanted to kind of soften their beliefs to help those beliefs better fit into Roman society. Because Gnostic dualism argued that pagan gods were not devils, they were simply non-existent. They taught that it was a matter of complete indifference whether one ate meat that had been offered and sacrificed to idols or one offered incense in honor of the emperor because this is, this is what really makes a difference. They believed that merely external acts did not affect their inner devotion of the mind. So basically they could kind of follow the Roman religious rituals they could live the way the culture lived, and it really didn't affect their inner spirituality, which is opposite of what Scripture tells us, right? So what was the response by early Christian leaders? So we have uh, a well-known early Christian pastor who we have some writings from uh, around... 130 to 200 AD, uh, Arrhenius of Lyon, who ended up, ended up kind of in France uh, later on in his life. But he argued against the Gnostic incursion into Christianity, and he has these two full, full writings that we have. We have the, one of them is proof of apostolic preaching, and the other one is against heresies. These are both pretty famous early works within the early church. So, both of these works are really engaged in refuting all these Gnostic teachings. And his method was threefold to kind of refute Gnosticism. First, he exposed the absurdity and contradiction of Gnostics drawn from their own writings. So like I said, we have maybe a dozen or so sects that are making stuff up. It's a man-made religion, and so they're writing these things. And like most man-made religions do, they contradict each other. So there was no unity in their thinking, and it contradicted the apostolic teachings. Second, it, he demonstrated the unity of the Old and New Testament writings through the parallelism of Adam and Christ. So Arrhenius was, was looking at that very early on. And third, he showed the unity of the church's teachings, and he showed their rightful claim to apostolic origin. So, you can see with all these Gnostic sects are coming into the church. And so the best argument that the church had is that these teachings contradicted their teachings, which the church would say were unified and that their teachings had true apostolic origin. They were from the apostles. They were from the first followers of Jesus. They were, they were eyewitness accounts to the life of Christ. They were the words that Christ spoke. They were the inspired words of the Holy Spirit. So this is where we start to get the argument of apostolic succession. So let's talk about apostolic succession, and what do we mean by that? So the Gnostic teachers kind of claimed to have these secret traditions. So these were, they would say, oh, this was a secret writing that was handed down just to me, or maybe I found it, you know, somewhere. But, but you know, I'm the only one that, that holds this secret. So they claim kind of secrecy. Where the church, like Arrhenius and other early Christian pastors, 
were asserting that their teachers were not, their teachings that they were following were not secret. They were passed down from the apostles and they were the exact same thing that the apostles taught. And so how, did, how could they prove that? How did they prove that in those early days? Well, Arrhenius could produce a list of all the pastors of the church at Rome and the church of Antioch as well from the days of the apostles onward. Remember, this is probably only, you know, a hundred years, a century after uh, the very, after Christ ascends into heaven. So he can produce a list. This pastor, this apostle passed this to this pastor, this pastor passed it to this pastor, this pastor passed it to this pastor. And he could demonstrate that each pastor had faithfully passed on the doctrine entrusted to him to this present day. And so he called this apostolic succession. And so what's the significance of this? One writer puts it this way. He says, The apostles Peter and Paul could not have failed to impart such doctrines on those whom they had had set over the churches. And that by by the line of accredited teachers in those churches of apostolic foundation, no such heretical notions had been transmitted. The succession argument carried the implication that the teachings given by the contemporary bishop of, say, Rome or Antioch was in all respects identical with that of the apostles. So in other words, apostolic succession showed that the teachings of the apostles had been faithfully transmitted through the years. Christians did not need to rely on these new secret teachings. They didn't need to rely on these new forged letters to know the true content of Christianity. Now, a lot of these letters people will talk about today, like there's the gospel of, what are some of them that are out there, Brian? Thomas. Yeah, I mean, they're, so people write books about these, and they'll try to disprove the Christian faith by using these old, made-up, forged letters that history really is shown to be um, man-made not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So don't let those fool you or don't let somebody make an argument against Christianity with one of those made-up teachings. They've already been refuted thousands of years ago. So you might have heard of apostolic succession in regards to the Roman Catholic Church, which would say that all supreme power of the church lays with the Pope. They would say that... uh, They can trace everything from the Apostle Peter and that the Pope is the true successor of Peter. But that's not really how Arrhenius was using this language here in the second century. He was simply pointing out how easy it it was to demonstrate that the same gospel was being preached in the second century that was being preached in the first century. So that kind of brings us to the canon of Scripture, right? Uh, And so... This was the next big argument to counter this false teaching was the canon of Scripture. So the Gnostic teachers tried to reject certain books of the Bible. They tried to discredit them. And so there was a great need to bring uh, the canon together. Uh, The historian Chadwick wrote that the truly astonishing thing about this is that so great a measure of agreement was reached so quickly there wasn't really a lot of disagreement about what should be included in the canon. 
because all of these writings were already being used from the very beginning, and so there wasn't much disagreement. F.F. F. Bruce wrote a book about this. He, the book is called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? This is what he said. Uh, this is just a quote from that book. One thing must be emphatically stated. New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included on a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognized their innate worth, and generally apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first uh, ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were both held in North Africa, at Hippo of Regius in 393 and Carthage in 397. But what these councils did was not impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of these communities. So they weren't really bringing these books in. They were just saying, we're already using these books. They're recognized as apostolic. They've been with us since the beginning. They are from eyewitnesses to Christ, or if not from, they were secondhand account uh, of that. Um, and, and this is what we're going to codify as the canon. The third tool used against the false teaching was the creed, uh, was the rule of faith, the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed was there very early on, and it, it emphasized the unity of the covenants and the fulfillment of Scripture in Christ. And so this creed was learned by every new believer before they were able to be baptized. They had to learn this creed. And they had to affirm this creed in order to be baptized and to come into the church. It says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is born of the, Vir uh, born of the, Holy, born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried on the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. So we see that the response to this false teaching, all of this false teaching, again, decreed by the Lord. He allowed it to come into the church, but there was a great purpose behind it. It kind of caused early believers, early Christians to organize the canon. It caused them to come up with a creed. It caused them to kind of codify their doctrine, to strengthen it, to give it unity. So as the church grew in unity and uniformity doctrinally, we also see that the organization and governance of the church began to develop more during this age. This was kind of a natural process in response to the rapid growth of the church but it also reinforced the authority of apostolic churches over and against the errors of these Gnostic false teachers. So really the organization that we see displayed in the New Testament, the way we try to organize our church as best we can, uh, was, was adhered to by the early churches. We see this from early writings. We see that baptism was the right by which they were admitted to the church. Each Sunday, they also gathered for their Thanksgiving or their Eucharist or what we would call the Lord's Supper, in which the baptized ate bread and drank wine. 
In that service, outsiders and non-baptized persons were prohibited from participating by deacons who guard the doors. We don't do that necessarily. Um, but Chadwick writes this about the, the early church. To share in this sacred meal was so deeply felt to be the essential expression of membership, he continues. A serious moral fault entailed exclusion from sharing in the meal, either permanently or for a time. But those so excluded continued to attend. The first part of the service, consisting of psalms, readings, and prayers, together with those who were not yet baptized but were receiving instruction. So even those who were not yet baptized, those who maybe had fallen into a sin that, that kept them from the Lord's Supper, they were still allowed to attend and worship. They just weren't allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. We also see church leadership begin to take form during this time. So we see uh, very early on, we see deacons and presbyters, or what we would call elders, uh, being formed within the church. Uh, we have this writing, the Didash. It, it provides kind of, it's almost like an instruction manual for the early church. It was written between 80, 70, and 110 is what, what is thought. So very early document that we have. And it says this, it says, Appoint for yourselves, therefore, bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men who are, are meek and not lovers of money, true and reliable. For they also perform for you the ministry of prophets and teachers. Do not despise them, therefore, for, you, for they are your men of honor together with the prophets and teachers. So we see that this instruction really follows what we see in the pastoral letters in the New Testament. So the division between elders and deacons in the early church followed the division in Acts 6. We've talked about this uh, within our church, that the, that the elders were uh, to, to attend to the ministry of the word and prayer, and that the deacons at this time took charge of the church property and administered charitable relief, while the elders oversaw the teaching and disciplinary work of the church. So we start to see in some of these early writings mention of bishops, and, and really by the second or third century, we see kind of almost like a lead elder take form. And that would be, they were oftentimes referred to as a bishop. And so they were kind of considered a leader among equals uh, in the early church. But it was someone who was kind of set apart as the lead person for that church. And Chadwick kind of gives four reasons for this development. The first reason was ordination. Both other elders, both of other elders and deacons, it required one member of the presbytery to take the lead. The second was for correspondence between churches, that it would be carried out between the presiding bishop. For churches to participate in one another's ordination services, one presbyter would be chosen and sent as a representative. And so this honor usually fell to the presiding elder or bishop. The crisis of the Gnostic movement necessitated a focus on a single leader in the church in order for the argument of apostolic succession to hold. And so we see this early on in the church at Jerusalem and also uh, in some of the correspondence of Ignatius. So 
we see that again, this wasn't a separate office. It was it was a bishop was among his presbyters. He remained kind of a first among equals, like a leader among equals. Okay, so we're going to finish that. We don't. I'm not going to get through everything, unfortunately, but I'm going to try to maybe five more minutes. So the the church expanded rapidly, right? We know this. We know that um, it started in Jerusalem outward through the eastern Mediterranean to Turkey and Greece. And by 60 AD, we know that the church was in the very heart of the Roman Empire, which was Rome. By 150 AD, we have reports of Christians scattered throughout every realm of the Roman Empire, from the eastern part of the Mediterranean all across North Africa, even even reaching up into modern-day France. Christianity had also spread beyond the Roman Empire to India, and even as far south as Ethiopia. As one Christian wrote, we have filled all that belongs to you, the cities, the fortresses, the free towns, the very camps, the palace, the senate, the forum. We leave empty only the pagan temples. Another Christian wrote in the second century that Christians day by day increase more and more. In the third century, Tertullian, an African pastor, could refer to Christians as a great multitude of men amongst the majority in every city. So what was the cause of this growth? Chadwick writes that nothing could have been less likely to succeed by any ordinary standard of expectation. You have these people that are hated, that are persecuted, that are fed to the lions, that are mocked, that lost their businesses, their families. How is it expanding? Well, history would tell us that that one of the main reasons for Christians' rapid expansion, obviously we know it's the Holy Spirit, but, but we would say one of the main reasons driven by the Holy Spirit was this idea of charity which really didn't exist. We, we think of charity as something normal today, non-Christians and Christians people, but that is a Christian idea. That is a Christian belief. It did not exist. The least of these were just left to die uh, before Christianity came into the world. And so Christians not only cared for one another, but they cared for the culture around them, for people around them. Another big thing was this idea of the sanctity of marriage, which did not exist. Uh, The treatment of women, which was very harsh and brutal before Christians entered into the world. Uh, Christianity expanded very rapidly amongst women because of this insistence on equal value of men and women before God and the requirements of how Christian husbands should treat their wives. Christians maintained the need for sexual purity within a society that normalized prostitution, pedophilia, homosexuality, and adultery, and and many other sinful sexual practices. So Christians were mocked and maligned, uh, just as a lot of them are today, for their views on sex, but in the long run, their practice and example won the day within the culture. The third thing that they were known for is the sanctity of life. The second area, this this is kind of another area in which Christians changed culture. This love showed itself in the care for the poor, uh, inside the church but also outside, in the care for widows, for orphans. 
not just in times of plenty, but in times of famine and pestilence and war and sickness. Christians provided burials for the poorer people. They showed hospitality to visiting brothers. They gave generously to the church. By the year 251, one historian writes that in addition to its own ministry, the church in Rome was supporting 1,500 widows and needy persons. It also showed itself in caring for the, for the unborn and the recently born. In his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, Tom Holland, who really, I'm not sure if he's a believer now or not, but was not a believer when he began writing this book, he kind of set out to write a book to show how Christianity has ruined the world, but he ended up writing a book on how Christianity changed the world for good. And this is a quote from his book, and it talks about uh, the care for infants. I was more ready to accept the modern interpretation of history that the triumph of Christianity had ushered in an age of superstition and credulity and that modernity was founded on the dusting down of long-forgotten classical views. But the longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonidas, whose people had practiced a peculiar murderous form of eugenics were nothing that I recognized were nothing that I recognized of my own, nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. The most defenseless of God's children were infants. Across the Roman world, wailing on the sides of roads or in rubbish tips, babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might be dropped down drains, there to perish in the hundreds. The odd eccentric philosopher aside, few queried this practice. Indeed, there were cities who by ancient law had made it a positive virtue, condemning to death deformed infants for the good of the state. Sparta, one of the most celebrated cities in Greece, had been the epitome of this policy, and Aristotle himself had lent it the full weight of his prestige. Girls in particular were liable to be winnowed ruthlessly. Those who were rescued from the wayside would invariably be raised as slaves. Brothers were full of women who, as infants, had been abandoned by their parents so much so that it had long provided novelists with a staple of their fiction. Only a few peoples, the odd German tribe and inevitably the Jews, had stood aloof from the exposure of unwanted children. Pretty much everyone else had always taken it for granted. Until that was the emergence of a Christian people. What the implications might be for infants tossed out with the trash was best demonstrated by a Christian woman named Marcrina. Marcrina, the eldest of nine siblings, would make a tour of the refuse tips. Those infant girls she rescued, she would take home and raise as her own. She believed within even the most defenseless newborn child, there might be a glimpse of a touch of the divine. Mary had given birth to Christ in a stable and laid him down on straw. Marcrina, taking up the slight form of the starving baby in her arms, could know for sure that she was doing God's work. So Christians were 
derided, persecuted, misrepresented, and mocked, but they continued to love one another and they continued to love their enemies, and that is greatly why they grew so quickly. Uh, There was a new persecution around 249, and this persecution arose from the Roman Empire was beginning to fade, basically, and so they said, let's go back to our old practices. Let's go back to our old worshiping of all these gods. And so the emperor at the time made this a decree. You had to make this public sacrifice to the gods. Many Christians kind of were weakened and did it. Many pastors told their churches to do it. And then many others kind of did it under the threat of death or torture. And many died uh, for refusing to do it. But that kind of created a dilemma after the persecution was over How do we deal with these people who basically apostatized by making this sacrifice? And that's what's going to be talked about last week. Just going to finish with this story about um, Polycarp. So Polycarp was a pastor in the church in Smyrna around AD 150. A mob erupted in the city calling, away with the atheist. Get Polycarp, the mob cried. The soldiers found Polycarp praying in his house. Save yourself, they told him. Consider your old age. What is the harm in saying Caesar is Lord just once? But Polycarp refused and was led to the arena to be thrown to the lions. The governor gave Polycarp three chances to save his life. First, he told him to say, away with the atheist, meaning the Christians. Polycarp pointed to the heathens in the galleries and said, away with the atheist. The governor gave him a second chance, curse Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. And can I revile my king that saved me? The third time the governor said, Swear by Caesar. Polycarp answered, I am a Christian. If you want to know what that means, set a day and I will explain it to you. I'll throw you to the beast, the governor threatened. Bring on your beast, Polycarp replied. replied. If you scorn the beast, I'll have you burned, the governor warned. You try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour, and yet you forget the fire of hell that never goes out. So Polycarp was burned at the stake. His dying prayer was, Lord God Almighty, Father of Jesus Christ, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this hour, that I shall take my place among the martyrs in the cup of Christ to rise again with the Holy Spirit. May I be an acceptable sacrifice. So as we consider the early church, the sufferings they endured, the, f- the faithfulness they exhibited, we should praise God for the lives of these brothers and sisters. We should thank God for the great cloud of witness that surrounds us and spurns us on. We should see them as examples of, of a way to live in a culture that is against your faith. So when you face hostility with your faith at work or within your family, when you feel the pain of being misunderstood by your friends, when you're accused of harboring hatred in your heart, when you know that to be false, remember Polycarp. Remember the saints that have gone before you. There's a great cloud of witness that has gone before you. And most of all, we remember Christ. 